You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your host. I'm joined today by Kevin Bethune. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Lou. Good to see you. Great to have you join us. Um, Kevin um, is the founder and chief creative officer of Dreams Design and Life, a think tank that delivers design and innovation services using a human-centered approach. Um, he's also the author of a book that just came out called Reimagining Design by MIT Press, the, the full title, Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation. And that's uh, part of the Simplicity series that John Maida is uh, curating. And finally, Kevin is going to be speaking at uh, a really great conference that's coming up June 6th through 8th called Design at Scale that happens to be produced by Rosenfeld Media. Um, we're going to talk a bit about what Kevin's going to cover, which ties in very much with this wonderful new book that's getting excellent reviews already. It's been out for what, Kevin, uh, maybe a month or so? A little over a month, yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you, first of all, uh, I think this is your first book, right? Correct. How does it feel? <laughs> feels feels surreal. I, I could say that writing a book wasn't on my career bingo card. never considered myself a writer. But um, I'm just very gratified by the journey that has transpired and how people are taking to the book. Well, okay, so that bingo card, it's really interesting. The... Um, uh, on that card are some things like mechanical engineer or, or, or working in nuclear power industry. You've you've designed Air Jordans for Nike. You've got uh, well, you have an MBA, right, somewhere in there, and uh, um, you've uh, studied the uh, design at the Art Center College of Design. I'm probably leaving a few things out. Well, of course, author and Rosenfeld media speaker. Let's not forget that, but. Um, Tell us a little bit about um, the journey of writing that book, because I'm sure you get into a bit of your personal journey in the book itself, into that bingo card. But um, if I understand it, you started out writing that book, what, just before the pandemic hit, and then suddenly you're doing a really hard thing during a really hard time. Tell us about that. Yeah, no, um, I, I sort of have to go back to the, the previous role before I started my, my company at the beginning of 2018. Um, previously, I was serving as uh, a design leader within sort of an upstart that BCG was cultivating called BCG Digital Ventures. That's we Boston Consulting Group? Correct, yep. correct. We were the digital ventures outfit inside of them. And we were sort of working as inverse consultants in that we would invite BCG's clientele to live in residence at a, a real innovation studio. And we would cook up solutions against latent needs in the market and actually spin out businesses that were aimed at addressing those needs. Can I just ask, stop you there. Let me make sure I'm clear on this. So you would bring the clients to you. Mm -hmm. that's, <laughs> that's not something I've ever heard of. <laughs> we we were uh, sort of a band of creative multidisciplinary misfits that kind of serendipitously met each other, found each other in, in Southern California, started working together and drew the attention of some very big players. This is right around the time that also we saw the, the huge tidal wave of design firm acquisitions getting swallowed up by bigger players. So we were sort of in the cusp of that paradigm shift and we were able to create a runway that 
sparked, you know, business ventures. Hmm. And, and it was, it was super gratifying work. And what BCG as a parent company taught me during that time, and again, I wasn't coming from BCG precedent or wasn't, BCG wasn't even part of the career path, but this sort of all, all happened for us. And as I observed BCG's larger culture, I, I grew to respect this, this notion of eminence that they exuded. Like, no matter the consulting projects the consultants were doing and how they were flying around the world, addressing different client needs, they were always writing. They were always speaking at conferences. They were always sharing what they learned in, from their work. And I always, that, that stuck with me. And having had to you know, serve and nurture and stand up design and innovation teams in that growing incubator, and by the time I left, we had gone from a handful of us to a thousand of us in just five years. You know, we 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 sort of had to like think about like, is, is there a codification opportunity? Can we kind of can we sort of codify the learnings, whether it's through speaking, articles, maybe writing a book one day? That was sort of on the brain of you know, having gone through this very unique experience, it'd be great to share it at some point. So that had always been on the mind. Mm-hmm. And I started like meeting with. Um, some friends that had published books before and got some counsel about how to think about our proposal. Really? They, didn't, was... they didn't say turn around before it's too late. <laughs> to, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, they, they just, just, the, I think the seeds were there, but, but again, like, I think it took some personal license and agency to say, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to prioritize making a book? And it could have been another book that added to the existing canon of design thinking, or it could have been an academic book that mined the intersections between design and business. It could have been a number of things. But to your earlier point, the contract landed at the very start of the pandemic. So March 2020 is when MIT Press said, yeah, we want to do this with you. Um, oh my. And I think we're all feeling good about this hypothesis that you have on the table, what you know, your journey has meant. And as I started writing, I think the jarring nature of what was happening, we were all affected by, whether it's direct or indirect, um, the overt stuff that we saw in the news or maybe felt in our vicinity was definitely translating to the covert stuff that you know I was remembering from my career path, not just like my personal experiences, but also how that translated into the professional arena in terms of knowing what it was, what knowing what it felt like to feel excluded at times, or as a um, as a male, understanding privilege, mm-hmm. like what, what it means to be a person of privilege in certain contexts. And all of that came like, spilling out as I'm writing about the weird multidisciplinary journey and the learnings that came of it. But what was the original hypothesis? And did you really get away from that as uh, as COVID hit and, and you got into the, the fun of the writing? You know, it, it probably was going to be another compendium of of benchmarked frameworks with a litany of case studies of not just my projects that I was a part of, but maybe, you know, pointing to exemplars in the market that would validate the, the thesis or the, the different perspective driven frameworks that I wanted to present to the reader. But it could have easily taken an academic tact or a very much a compendium of case studies Got it. where there would be little room for my voice. I see. So it, you pivoted and you went with something more in your voice. Um, well, I mean, once you accepted that maybe it was going to be a little different than you originally had proposed, 
Um, I'm wondering if you had that moment where the writing just fell out of your fingertips. Um, you know, I think, I think when I had to share the first couple of chapters as things were percolating, um, and then sort of feeling the support of my editor and the, the, the team around him and like, Oh, there's something here. Keep going. Just keep going. There wasn't like a suggestion to pivot or you're off the wrong, wrong track or we didn't, we didn't sign you up to write a memoir. <laughs> it, it was like, just keep going. And, but I, but I knew also that I'd been sort of forewarned that there's definitely a peer review precedent when you go through their process. And the, the, the proposal was even peer reviewed and mm -hmm. you know, there were enough support for that to move it forward. But you know, now I'm writing the manuscript and as I was getting to that first draft in approaching sort of the, the back end of summer 2020 with the draft ball of clay on the table, they, they then peer reviewed that mm -hmm. with anonymous readers. And, you know, the, the feedback then was a bit spicier <laughs> where you had like, you definitely have for the book and for the arguments. And they, I think they were enticed by, by the idea of some personal memoir, personal narrative, providing context and framing for the perspectives that are being offered. Um, and then others um, that were a bit, I, I don't want to say offended, but sort of adverse to the idea of some of the perspectives because they felt it threatened the existing zeitgeist around some of the design thinking frameworks that have become so popular from the likes of IDEO and the like. So I felt a little bit of that threat that the book posed to that ivory tower, if you will. I had no idea that those methodologies were so fragile. But um, uh, so uh, interesting. So you, you, you know, you, and, and by the way, this is why we do tech review. I, I take, I hear you when you say that some of the feedback was spicy. That's um, it's a nice word for for it, I'm sure. But um, but it's good to do. Uh, I'm sure you're, it was good you went through it. But let's let's talk about that journey, that that narrative. And you've used a couple of um, of ideas to describe it so far. One is interdisciplinary, and certainly your, it sounds like your career has has spanned a lot of different disciplines. But you've also been part of some teams that were quite interdisciplinary and also this, this feeling of othering or being othered uh, or being excluded, but then also um, getting to, to feel what it's like to have privilege as well. Um, are, are those the main uh, threads in that journey or are there others? Maybe you can, f you can color that in a little bit for us. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, what I'll say is that definitely the journey that unfolded wasn't part of any master plan, you know, at the start. I, I can say though, hindsight being 2020, was that curiosity has been a defining thread for me. And being raised in a household that, you know, I think there was sort of an appreciation for the history and the relatives and ancestors that came before my family in the level of adversity, um, before folks that have lived through, you know, civil rights movement and the like, and stories even before that, that percolate the dinner table when we reunite as families around Thanksgiving dinners and things like these stories come into the woodwork. And there was always a, sort of this appreciation of, of knowledge of self, being, having respect and pride for where you come from, even, even through the throes of adversity. Um, and so when I first started like coming into maturity as a young man and even you know, the first couple of months on the college campus, 
when you're sort of dreaming about all the things you, you could do to have someone say, I don't see that path for you. And, you know, it might've been a situation where I might've faced initial adversity around like just the, maybe the gap jumping from high public high school education to the rigor of a, of a premier university and feeling those gaps, you know, and, and navigating those first couple of months at the first night of adversity, counting me out of the game before I even like really got started. Um, but thankfully knowing where, where I've, where I've come from and, and being no stranger to resistance and adversity saying, you know what, uh, you know, you say that you see that for me, but I'm still curious about that. And I will, I will do what's necessary to shore up my gaps. You know, I will, I will hit that bar of success and try to exceed it and do what's necessary to lean into my curiosity. So that, that if anything, made me more stubborn around <laughs> sticking with engineering for the first you know, chapter of my career. And then of course, when you change gears and add a business layer to it through an MBA education, again, that's in another environment, all kinds of voices sort of articulating like what they think I should do you know, with that degree, whether it's power and influence, go here, wealth building, you go here. And, and, you know, you start to lose a little bit of your own voice when you hear all these voices around you saying what you should do or what people perceive you as being able to do, but still you got to lean into your curiosity and say like, what actually is stroking my heartstrings? Like what, how, how do I lean more into that? So yeah, I guess learning through the cycles of like learning to listen to yourself more mm -hmm. or even the resistance that you might face. So that, that has been like a lingering thread for me. That's great. I love that phrase, lean into your curiosity. And it sounds like doing so stubbornly in the face of what other people might have to say. Probably often people who you didn't even ask for their opinion, and yet there they were uh, telling you things. I, 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 I remember that sensation quite a bit in graduate school. But uh, um, you know what? Um, that's great advice. I really love that advice about leaning into curiosity. I have a feeling you've got a lot of other great advice that comes from your story. We're going to learn some more about it after the break. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. Hey, it's Lou, and I want to put in a plug for a very special experience that Rosenfeld Media is putting on. It's the Design at Scale 2022 conference. It's taking place June 8th through 10th, and it will be 100% virtual. Why are we doing this conference? Well, first of all, it's the latest edition of a conference that's taken a lot of different shapes uh, over the last seven or so years. It was the Enterprise UX conference for a while, then it was Enterprise Experience, and the last couple of years, Design at Scale. Uh, this year in particular, we are looking back at the last couple fun years we've all been having taking the lessons, looking at some of the challenges, pulling together and distilling what we've learned and using what those lessons are to help map a, a path forward. So look at this conference in a way, if you work in a large organization as a designer or researcher, what have you, as an opportunity to reflect and then pivot and take what we are covering in these three days and arm yourself to move forward that's what Design at Scale is going to be about. Uh, if you want to know the themes, the first one, we have a whole day on this, is design practices in times of crisis. The second day is all dedicated to design processes for a new normal. And the third day, the third theme, is design people caring for individuals and teams 
If this sounds up your alley, come to the website, designatscale.co. Check out the program. I think you'll be impressed. And again, we do virtual really well. I think you'll enjoy the experience. I hope we'll see you June 8th through 10th at Design at Scale 2022. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld. My guest is Kevin Bethune. Kevin, uh, you are starting to really uh, jam on good advice, uh, lean into your curiosity. Um, as you said, there's a lot um, uh, in your journey and in your book about the role of diversity. And can you port that into some advice for people listening? How can they learn from your, your hard-won experience? You know, as, as an individual, yeah, definitely. I just continue to reinforce with folks to lean into their curiosity. And then like, what does that mean though? I think regardless of whatever title you carry, no matter what level in organization you are, we can all lean in and actually have that, that conversation with someone that might be coming from a different angle of perspective. Maybe they're in a different department. We can always connect the dots to the bigger picture beyond just our immediate orbit of work that we're involved in. And that might provide learning pathways, you know, whether it's stretch assignments that I've had the benefit of, of enjoying. Um, fast forward, when I was in the Nike environment, that stretch assignments were a pathway to eventually design shoes for the Jordan brand, mm -hmm. where it wasn't in my job description to, to do those kind of things. And the experiments sort of yield evidence that you could hold up, not just for others to see, but also for yourself to say, you know, is this path actually for me? Can I step forward with confidence and credibility based on the evidence of that experiment? And you start to like lean into, you know, arenas and convictions that you really care about because maybe it's a, you're starting to see a pathway that leads to an ability to leave your mark on the world in the way that you want to, you know, manifest that. And then beyond just the individual journey, there's something to be said for the tact of leadership that's necessary to ensure that we're leveraging our diversity. And unfortunately, within our fields of design and innovation, the, the, the level of representation, no matter what intersectional dimension you pick, um, you know, that, that, the, the, the level of representation in terms of our, our field's ability to match the mosaic that is the world is woefully behind. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a big believer in really mining the the dimensions of what I call servant leadership in the book. And, you know, I'm, I didn't coin the term servant leadership. There's tons of thought leadership around those terms, but I do see that as one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, which is sort of counterintuitive to innovation is the notion of gatekeeping. So I try to break down the difference across that spectrum of seven dimensions of leadership tech that hopefully biases our energy toward the servant leadership end of the spectrum. And if we're honest, at any moment in our journey, we can reflect and say, oh, I was probably a gatekeeper <laughs> over here on this dimension, and maybe I was more service-minded on this other dimension. And that's fine. Let's take that inventory. We should each do that. But I, I think about like examples of setting direction. You know, a, a, a gatekeeper might expect compliance out of their team on all situations. They, they want you to comply, do what I tell you. And a servant leader might invite you into hearing the articulation of a vision, but they want you to share in that vision 
And we were going to carve up the work and give pieces. We're going to give runways to the team members to take ownership of that vision in their own special ways. A servant leadership, a servant leader would do that. Uh, another example might be hiring. A gatekeeper might hire to comfort zone. You know, can I have a beer with this person? Mm -hmm. Do I like, do I see myself liking to be around this person? And at the end of the day, when we take a step back, like, what are we really talking about? Wait a minute. That's how we used to pick presidents. <laughs> That's not exactly. right. That's not. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. We don't do that anymore. Um, so, yeah. so it's interesting. So that, that you know, like there's a there's servant leadership and gatekeeping. Are they basically the two opposite poles on the the single spectrum? Okay, got it. That's really interesting. I like the way you've put that. Um, what one as you're going through these examples and and framing it especially around leadership, one of the questions I have, and this comes up for me a lot, is around um, uh, helping people with language. And mm. in, in effect, it's like a form of code switching. Like for you, you've like gone from engineering to business. It's a different language. I mean, even in engineering, I'm, I'm sure the language you had to use to do your work uh, with a mechanical engineering background in a nuclear industry setting was probably different than you were trained to do. Uh, it's, it, and I mean, language in terms of vocabulary. How, yeah. And, you know, I'm wondering if that is like a big challenge you see leaders facing, especially as they try to, you know, move themselves more toward the servant leadership end of the spectrum. Because they have to, they can't comply. They can't make everyone learn their language. They have to kind of, serve the people they're leading by helping them have better conversations and better collaboration. Is, is that something that you've seen come up a lot? And have you seen any good models to help? Yeah, no, absolutely agree. And it makes me jump back to the memories of what it took to stand up design and innovation inside of BCG as, as we were forming the digital ventures outfit. Uh, when we, we sort of explored the thesis of what do you get when you mash all these different disciplines around the, the, the war room or around the strategy table together? Well, we, we quickly realized that the notion of the Venn diagram, these intersecting disciplines is definitely a utopian ideal. Like everyone gets it when they see the diagram, but in reality, these people probably have never done this before. And to your point, language collisions, lack of chemistry, lack of cohesion, and so the teams had basically had to figure out how to, how to let go of their baggage and actually be vulnerable with each other and be transparent around, hey, this has been the precedent. I was the alpha you know, leader in the room always. Now I have to share the baton with other disciplines and figure out like when to share and when to assert my leadership, but also serve you and give up the, 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 the baton or the microphone to you to let you shine and let your expertise flourish. Like team, we had to learn all that one venture at a time, letting the best teams form their ideal chemistry and then like figure out how to codify the learning so that the next team wouldn't have to go through the same trials and tribulations. And it became a real necessity to put energy there. So all that to say is, I think the future is going to require us, regardless of discipline, to be in more multidisciplinary rooms to address the complexities of what the future beholds and all the resilience, flexibility, uncertainty that we have to navigate. So we better 
figure out how to orchestrate breadth and depth of collaboration. And when I say breadth and depth, it's like from a breadth perspective, now I'm in a room with different actors. How do I empathize with my teammates as stakeholders, not just the end consumer I'm designing for, and empathize with language, empathize with shared alignment? How can we use you know, philosophies like design thinking and other philosophies to rally around the right value criteria that matters to the different stakeholders, but then still orchestrate the freedom to allow each expert around that table to go deep on their craft and their subject matter expertise, even leave the team room if need be to have the space to bring something substantial back to the room. Teams of T-shaped people. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you talk about codification quite a bit. Is, is that what you've done in your book to a large degree? Yes, but just enough so that, again, I, I will never claim to have all the answers, but I do share the experiences and the perspectives that unearthed to allow you, the reader, whether you're an individual or organization, to say, okay, how does this fit my world? And there's enough room for you to make it yours and have it fit your journey. Uh, I love the sound of that, and I am going to pick up a copy. Uh, but I'm also really fortunate because I get to hear your talk in June at Design at Scale. Uh, I hope people listening will consider doing the same thing. It's a virtual conference taking place June 8th through 10th. Kevin's one of our speakers, obviously. It's got a fantastic lineup of people that are sharing um, partly the lessons, as Kevin was just talking about, of the last couple of years. Uh, some things that were already happening that were accelerated and some things that were completely unexpected in the design world. And uh, taking this opportunity with this conference to pivot from uh, pulling together what we've learned uh, in these recent years and uh, distilling it and uh, using it as a springboard to move forward. And, and, and Kevin, I think your, your book is going to be in the canon of, of moving forward for people in design. So again, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, and um, hope you will all join us. Um, but before we wrap up, uh, Kevin, question for you. Um, I always like to finish with um, my guests uh, shining a little light on someone or, or something that they think uh, the audience should hear about, which got for us. Definitely. I think uh, the first name that comes to mind, she's a wonderful creative leader working in the space of future foresight practicing, which is in my opinion, one of the harder design capabilities to drive in the business world and to get adoption and get resonance. Uh, so my friend Rada Mystery, she's presently the foresight, uh, I should say, she's the foresight practice leader for Autodesk in the Bay Area, uh, but really driving a strong foresight practice. Her thought leadership is definitely recognized across the futurist community, but it has implications for our design field as well. And, and we'll love to see Rada embraced by our larger design community. Well, thanks for tipping us off. And, and thanks again for joining us. Kevin Bethune, founder and chief creative officer of Dreams, Design, and Life, author of Reimagining Design by MIT Press, and of course, speaking at Design at Scale, a fantastic Rosenfeld Media virtual conference taking place June 8th through 10th. Thanks again, Kevin. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. 
I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com. <laughs>